I would love to unlock some small piece of approachability I've found extremely helpful over the years. I think every great leader that I've met has had to learn this lesson at some point. And this idea of great leaders are growing so much and they're becoming these great communicators and they absorb so much great information. Sometimes they hit a point where they're leading too far out in front of their people and they almost create this gap. So sometimes leaders are leading so far out in front, they're just not relatable. And so when they can step back and be like, I can still learn and grow, but I can't be so front of my people. They may not be doing all the growing that I'm doing yet. So let me make sure I've got my arms around them still while I'm growing. And I think that's a big breakthrough I've seen a lot of leaders make when it comes to that approachability and authenticity. To be a great leader, you have to have a following, which means others around you who want your leadership and a style that makes you easy to follow. Chris Malpors has a deep understanding of what makes leaders easy to follow and he teaches insights on authenticity and approachability, getting clear on values and communicating them to others, how to motivate people, and a whole lot more. This conversation has value from start to finish for anyone who wants to lead others. I know you'll learn a lot from the thought-provoking lessons of Chris Malpors. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I have a fantastic guest for you today who has some really brilliant insights in the area of leadership. His name is Chris Malpors. And Chris worked in Cutco from about 1995 to about 2003 in the New England area. And he advanced as far as being a district manager in New Hampshire. Chris went through a variety of different roles after his Vector career, where he learned a lot about leadership. And he ultimately founded his own management consulting firm called Bushido Leadership. And uh, in the course of that, Chris is connected with Blue Cross, where he now is involved in helping to develop all of their leadership development programs for their entire organization. Uh, He has written a book called The Easy to Follow Leader, which I found to be very insightful and very practical. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that today as well as other things. Chris Malpors, thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Thank you, Dan. I'm so grateful to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation that I think people will get a lot out of. Why don't we go back to 1995 and just start with how you got started with Vector? 25 years ago, it blows my mind. I remember it so vividly. It left such an imprint on me. 
like a lot of people, I had a flyer left on one of my desks at school. My only prior work experience was uh, four twenty-five an hour at TJ Maxx. So <laughs> the flyer that said ten twenty-five an hour, I felt like that was a pretty hot pay raise. It was funny because I was at University of Maine uh, in the Bangor, Maine area, and the nearest branch office, that's also where I live, was two hours away. So with no information, and we didn't even have a receptionist to call, and we just had a recording with uh, times and directions to, to pop in. And I went with my college roommate, and uh, he wore you know jeans and a hat, and I tried to look a little nicer, but I didn't want to you know upstage him. And we went down and I, I remember that interview actually really vividly in spite of how long ago it was. And I remember saying to the manager, what impressed me most about the company that really stuck with me as a life lesson is that how the representatives are trusted, you know, with this base pay to, to conduct these, these presentations. And it's, yeah, there's this honor system component to it. And it dawned on me when I learned that, that trust instills responsibility. If somebody wants to gain responsibility, they need to be trusted with something. And I saw that as a great opportunity for for me. I thought the product was was really cool, and it just it looked like uh, something I could do just to have a lot of fun and be independent. And I wasn't great. I'm reluctant to share because I listen to a lot of these episodes, and you have had some titans of the business come through and silver cup winners, and that was not in my history. But I was consistent. I stuck around. I learned so much from the company. I loved being a sponge, and what dawned on me that lived really. I think is still central to some of my philosophies and beliefs in leadership is, you know, I had seven managers before I became a district, seven different people that I called my manager or my leader. They were all so different. And everybody I met at Vector at conferences, these really impressive people, they were also just really different. And there was no sort of one size fits all or cookie cutter. We had a similar culture and some of the values were consistent, but to me, I just had so much fun learning from these people. And to this day, I've never met more diverse and a more exciting and a more awesome group, group of leaders. And, you know, I learned a lot about how far enthusiasm can get you. I ran a branch in 1997 and that branch ended up being uh, top in the Northeast region. And we had so much fun doing that, that I decided actually to shift my career from, I was a pre-vet major at University of Maine to really just stick around with, with the company. I saw no good reason to, to leave based on what I was learning, what I was earning. you know. And I, I had a rocky start and it was the support and help of a, a few really so solid influential people that to this day I hold really tightly in my heart as being such a good influence for me that I had a series of breakthroughs. I don't think I ever really popped but there were so many instances where I was learning from, you know, like the Jeff Gamboas of the world and the John Keynes were, were uh, taking me under his wing, you know, for, for some instruction. You know, I had 50% uh, increases each year for four straight years as a district. And it finally got, I think our best year was uh, we had a top 10 ranking nationally. It was really an exciting time for those, uh, for those eight years I was with the company. That's some great results, Chris. And like you said, you use the word that you weren't a titan, but to have to come out of the gates and be able to grow year over year significantly as you did is a tremendous achievement. And I think that the, that garners a lot of respect for who you are and what you accomplished in the company. You referenced the you know key people that influenced you, John Kane, Jeff Gamboa. Any other key people that you feel like had a huge impact or key lessons that you got from them in your early career? 
we do not have enough time <laughs> for me to go through. But I think there are people that left a really strong imprint on me. I think of uh, some of the division managers from back then that were Rick Castro, that were Earl Kelly. Uh, and I know in, in our division, as I was really starting to, to grow and, and to figure things out as a leader, uh, Mara Berghoff back then was Mara Fausto. She came into our division, had transferred in and just started slapping us around with amazing numbers and fast starters. And she was really um, producing at a level that the rest of us in the division hadn't really even seen or, or, or imagined. And it was happening right in front of us and we had access to that. And that was where I found it really fun to, to compete with somebody that was kind of really far over my head. But the end result was we were achieving more than we ever had on, on our team. And we were, uh, we were having a lot of fun in the process. That's awesome. That's awesome. All those people that you've mentioned so far have gone on to do incredible things, whether it be in Vector or out of Vector, and uh, really powerful to see what they're doing. Of course, Earl Kelly is the current Northeast region manager, close colleague and friend of mine over the years, and uh, somebody who people really look up to and respect. So it's good to hear that you had a, uh, a successful run during your time in Vector. Now, I know that after you left Vector, you ventured through a few different types of opportunities over the years. You continued elevating your game and understanding leadership, ultimately started your own company, Bushido Leadership, to offer management consulting, and that uh, in time, you were motivated to write the book. So uh, the book is called The Easy to Follow Leader. If you're watching on video, you can see it right there over Chris's shoulder or... (laughs) right here in my hand. And tell us what led you to write the book. Yeah, this was quite a long process, actually. And the very short version was when I was operating in healthcare, and it was one of the things that really challenged me the most because I found a lot of success expressing passion and enthusiasm at Vector. And when you're in a healthcare environment, being really passionate and enthusiastic doesn't get you the same sort of success. And I had to learn where to channel that. And I learned that compassion became my new sort of uh, domain where I could really connect with people. And in doing so, we started to do some really original work. And I try to be a learning junkie everywhere I go. And when we're finding something that works, I want to find ways to to fine-tune it and to to do it even better than we ever have before. And in doing that, I was doing research on our own work and figuring out that nobody's really doing what we're doing. And these are constructs around uh, motivation. And uh, really developing people who aren't leaders, such as you know, clinical workers, to, to develop that in them so they have a, a clear career path. And I wanted to copyright some of this work that we were doing that was original. And I was literally just digging down the rabbit hole. I was thinking white papers. I was thinking blogs. And I got connected with a friend of mine who had published uh, his, his own work. And uh, he connected me with their publisher. And it was a handful of conversations, but they looked at some of the original work that we were doing. And the original thought for the book was to have, have it really focused on healthcare. Publisher had, uh, we discussed broadening it for the masses instead because the concepts they said were really universal. So we ended up uh, agreeing on a format and a basic outline. And uh, six months later, the book was out. I was astonished at how quickly <laughs> it went from, uh, from, from start to finish. Yeah. Well, it's really outstanding. And and you share some key concepts that I want to get into in this interview today. And so let's dive in and talk about some of these concepts. Uh, There's a story you tell in the book toward the outset where you 
describe being told you were too nice. Well, this is while you're working in Vector. And you sort of evolved from that into something that you didn't really want to be. John Kane was the guy that came in and gave you some specific feedback on that. And it, it ties into the idea of learning to be more approachable as a leader. And so tell us a little bit about that time in your Vector career and, uh, in, and, and this concept of approachability. Sure. This is where I believe I turned a page to understand authenticity, which it's a component of leadership, but I think it's a component of the human condition and, and how we show up every day and how we show up to our families and our, our spouse. And as a, a new district manager, I spent a year really struggling. I was really impressed with the success the company was having and you know, people around me were successful. So I knew it was based on something that I needed to figure out. And I was receiving a, a field visit uh, almost exactly a year into my, my district manager tenure in Southern New Hampshire. And uh, so John Kane had, had come for a field visit and he had just, he came to observe, he watched uh, a recruiting class and we went out to dinner afterwards. And I don't know if I've ever met anybody who can show up quite like John Kane when he engages with you. And I've heard this or similar things from other people who have been impacted by him. When he engages you, you just feel like you are the most important person in the world to him. Mm-hmm. And he has nothing else going on except for whatever it is that you need. Mm-hmm. And that was such a, a moving and, and touching experience. What John had, had done is he watched my interview and I had received a lot of advice about, well, you're too nice, Chris. You know, you need to be a little tougher. And in doing that, I actually discovered that I went from bad to worse because One of my stronger characteristics is building relationships. But when I suddenly took that away and I was starting to push people away and be more gruff or aloof, people didn't get it. They they looked at me, they're like, where is this coming from? And I only could really figure that out in retrospection. And so John called me a a name that my publisher wouldn't let me put in the book. So I'll just use the word that the publisher (laughs) allowed me to use. He said, you know, Chris, quit being a jerk. You're bad at it. And how he said that, just so matter of fact, I will never forget that. You know, here we are 20 plus years later. And he said, Stop being a jerk. You're bad at it. And it was, he made a couple small tweaks to my recruiting class. And literally that same evening, he made the tweaks for my, the, the post interview. My shows to training went from very bad. They were under 20%. And we were a few weeks into the summer. So I was panic button to having shows for the rest of my Vector career, uh, shows to training, which were about two-thirds to, to, to 75%, and it was, uh, which was a massive jump. And it was really the biggest gap in my game as, as a district manager. And uh, from there, not only did that help my recruiting, but it helped my retention and it helped my development because I learned that I could be tough on people without being mean or gruff or pushing them away. The authentic part and the approachability part was I learned how to really just open myself up and really connect with people with passion and compassion and really open up that care to them, kind of like what I observed in, in John Kane. I tried to have as much of that rub off on me as, as possible and really putting forward that effort to care for those people that, that depended on me for leadership and training and motivation and influence. Yeah, that was great. You said something earlier about how you had seven different managers and they were seven different types of people. 
And I think when somebody grows up in the business, there are different people that they're influenced by. There might be the initial manager that recruited them. There might be the primary manager that developed them. There might be their division manager or their region manager. And that as people grow up into leadership roles, if they try to be someone else who they've seen successful, there can be that disconnect. And it's so important not to try to be someone else, right? Like you were told to try to be someone who you weren't. And that uh, it is important for us to keep in mind that, uh, you know, what got us to where we are is the personality that we have. And, and, you know, being our authentic self is important and developing the best of that, right? Refining that is key, but not trying to be somebody else that we aren't. So I thought that was a really good insight that was, uh, came out early in the book. Now you also share a lot, Chris, about uh, values throughout the book. And this ties in because one of your values was connection, right? Connecting with people, building rapport, right? Being approachable. But you talk a lot about leaders getting really clear on their values and how those values impact their day-to-day interactions. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. The simplest part of that is our values are a way to understand our, our be- the behaviors that we show. And I think one of the hardest parts of a, a leader expressing their values is you almost paint yourself into a corner. So if a leader really has a value of courage, for instance, they may not always want to share that with people because there are times when they may hold back or they may not be courageous. And to me, a, a value isn't about this is how you are all the time. I look at that values are like a compass on a ship, for instance. And if you're on a ship, you have all kinds of instruments sort of telling you where to go. And a ship is technically never directly on course. It sort of veers left, it veers right, but all these instruments make you write your course. And these values are, they're like your compass. And when you check in on them, they're really for when you catch yourself straying or for when you need to come back to courage. So having courage as a value doesn't mean you're always courageous. It means you're always paying attention to those moments where you are showing courage and also those moments where you need to show more courage. And so having those values is a way to hold yourself accountable. Sharing those values is a way to extra hold yourself accountable because you know people are watching. And so it's okay to say, you know, hey, I really value honesty and being able to hold yourself accountable that if you say something that ends up you thought was true at the time ends up being proven wrong or, or it could have been information that changed over time. It's okay to let people know, look, honesty is really important to me. And I was incorrect about that. And it helps that dialogue really be more, uh, more pure. And, um, you know, it, it, it's the, I think the biggest way that leaders are held accountable. How can you recommend that somebody does the work to determine their key values? What are the steps to follow? So this is a deeply personal journey. And it's one of the tenets of the work that I do with leaders is that Leadership is not one size fits all. And by that same token, I don't believe there's a such thing as a leadership expert, myself included. I think being able to coach and support leaders to find what's important to them and be able to bring that out. So often as leaders, we figure, oh, this worked for me. So it'll work for you too. And we have to be cautious because that is true a lot of the time. But once in a while, I'll get what I refer to as uh, bad, good advice <laughs> or inappropriate good advice. Like when I was told, hey, Chris, you're too nice. You need to be tougher. Well, that advice works for some people. And it's really good advice for those people. It just, it didn't jive for me. And so it's almost asking yourself the question, 
blank is important to me and fill in the blank. And you ask that mm. question a few times. And sometimes you keep having, when you find a word or you find that thing, you also got to ask the why. Um, I really liked uh, listening again to the, the John Berghoff episode referencing Mark Lovis, who said, um, be really clear on the why and the how will happen. Sure, I'm twisting that. So it's not totally correct. Right. The how will reveal itself. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. The how will, will reveal itself. When you're very clear on that why, you're actually going to be emotionally moved. And that's a construct of motivation. And when you find that value or that thing that really is a, a piece of you, you know that you can keep it with you forever. And it may change over time. That's fine. But at least for the here and now, it can drive you. Yeah. Is there like in teaching people come up with your list of values, is, is there like a magic number that is key to sort of guide your day-to-day activities? Is it five key values? Is it 10 key values? Is it less, more? Like how, how, do you, how do you view that? Less is better. Uh, I'll lean back on the certainly can't be one size fits all. I wouldn't say that there is a magic number. I think an individual has their number. No matter who, especially for an organization, I think an organization can't do any more than five. If they've got like the six or the eight or us in some list as long as 14, I just think that you're, you're giving people too much to pay attention to and they just won't pay attention to anything. A lot of the, the neuroscience backs up and neuroscience of learning anyway backs up that if you give people just the three to five things that are really important, like that's what can be really sticky for, for them and be important to them. And everything that you do can really branch off of that. So if you are really clear about your value of courage, for instance, you're going to be better at things like emotional intelligence or change management or some of those other things that managers spend a lot of time training themselves for reality is is that you you unleash your own natural abilities and your own natural talents so much more clearly when you have a value and you're uh, you're working towards like a compass you're working towards that true north yeah outstanding and and how would you suggest that a leader communicates his or her values to the people around them Sure. It's uh, a lot simpler than people think. This act itself does take some some courage. It takes a little bit of grit because a leader is really being vulnerable and putting themselves out there. I think the first thing they can, they can let their circle of influence know is just what the value is. But the second part is just as important. It's letting those people know, hey, if I ever stray from this, I want you to let me know. If you spot me not being courageous or mm. if you spot me out of integrity... I really want you to tell me because I want to do my best to, to get back online. And that creates such a level of intimacy and vulnerability when you talk about relationship building that transcends, you know, leader to direct report relationship. You're talking just the act of being human at this point. And so that second step is, is really critical. And I think you can even go that third step to say, you know, this is also what I want to expect, say courage, for instance, I'd like us as a team to be courageous. So if we're not courageous as a team or as individuals on a team, here's what we'll do. And you can be very clear up front with people that if I feel that you're out of integrity, or if I feel that you're not being your, your most courageous self, well, that's important to me that you are. So I'm going to let you know how I want to help you get through that. And that way, when that instance arises, people are a bit prepared for it. And it, uh, they're not blindsided by that extra level of coaching or support. Hmm. I, I love what you shared about 
a, a leader telling people very clearly, hey, these are the things that are important to me as a leader. These are, you know, my core values. And then saying, you know, if I ever stray from anything here, please let me know. Inviting feedback from others is a critical element of being able to establish approachability of building relationships and of being able to grow an organization, right, in the mold that you want it to grow. I think it really requires that that uh, banter or feedback that goes on back and forth whenever we are getting off track in certain areas of our of our life. Yeah, I'll just add to that really quickly is the back end of that is how the leader responds to it when somebody calls them out. I've seen so many leaders have this so-called open door policy. And then in that same breath, they'll say, I have an open door policy and things are great. Nobody ever comes in. I have to pause a moment and let them really, you know, let that sink in. And there's a reason why nobody's using their open door policy is because they weren't met with that same level of authenticity or they weren't met with that same level of reception when somebody comes in with a problem or an issue or even yet uh, to, to call out the leader for misstepping around some of their values. And so when leaders get abrasive or they get defensive or they do anything but say thank you when somebody uses that open door policy, you know, they're really undoing a lot of that work. And so that approachability piece, it's, uh, it's really getting on top of that appreciative inquiry, which I've heard referenced on, on this show several times before, staying on top of that appreciative inquiry and creating that psychological safety for people to, uh, to want to, to open up knowing that they're going to be hurt. Uh, I really resonate with that, Chris. And, and I think that when you describe the idea of, hey, I got an open door policy, but everything's great. Nobody ever comes in. Uh, that was me. That was me a lot of years ago in my early part of my career. I always felt like I was open to having people, you know, offer me insights and feedback. But I, you know, honestly, like I can't remember how I responded. And, and I, I can't remember if I responded in ways that were constructive or not. I can't really remember if I was ever really defensive, you know, in how I interacted with people that gave me negative feedback. But I will say that feedback I've been given by people you know, above me uh, throughout my years as I was growing as a leader was that I needed to learn to be more approachable. And mm-hmm. I needed to learn to be more warm was something I've, I've often been offered as a leader. And what flipped the switch for me was something as simple as reading the book, The Four Agreements, mm-hmm. where, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz talks about, uh, don't take things personally. And I just, for whatever reason, that simple concept like got into my head, made me realize like, wow, when somebody tells me something that I can improve or that I did poorly or whatever it is, any type of feedback I get, that's a gift I'm getting of awareness. I would not have known that, right? If if I was walking, you know, if I was at a meeting in my suit and there was a thread hanging off my suit, I'd sure want somebody to say, hey, there's a thread on your shoulder, you know, here, mm-hmm. pull that off for you right? You'd appreciate that. But yet when people offer other types of feedback to us, we so often respond with defensiveness versus, as you said, simply saying, hey, thank you for sharing that so that it keeps that open line of communication. Even when you disagree with the feedback, thank you for sharing that keeps the communication lines open so that that same person can come in next week and might offer you an insight that literally changes your life. Right. But if you shut down that line of communication, then you miss next week's feedback because they stopped coming in. Right. I would love to unlock some small piece of 
uh, approachability I've found extremely helpful over the years. And this is, um, I think every great leader that I've met has had to learn this lesson at, at some point. And this idea of great leaders are growing so much and they're, they're becoming these great communicators and they, uh, they absorb so much great information. Sometimes they hit a point where they're leading too far out in front of their people. And they they almost create this gap as oh I can't approach Dan like he's so amazing he he won't even understand my problem, mm. and when leaders great leaders I see them hit sort of that little wall where they have to sort of step back and I almost think of a parent where you know dad may be you know making tons of money but he's never home he's away all the time and you know the kid doesn't care about food on the table necessarily they just want dad to be home they just want the they just want the playtime and. So sometimes leaders are leading so far out in front, they're just not relatable. They hit that mm-hmm. point. And so when they, they can step back and be like, I can still learn and grow, but I, I can't be so far out in front of my people. They may not be doing all the growing that I'm doing yet. So let me make sure I've got my arms around them still while I'm growing. And I think uh, that, that that's a big breakthrough I've seen a lot of leaders uh, make when it comes to that approachability and authenticity. Boy, that's a great insight for the super achievers who are listening to this is, you know, are you sometimes leading so far out in front that you're no longer relatable to the people you're working with? Like that, uh, I-, I could definitely see that coming into play. Excellent stuff. Another of the key concepts you talk about in the book, Chris, is what you call lazy leadership. So tell us what you mean by that. And then uh, let- let's talk about the keys to overcoming that. Sure. So a couple points on lazy leadership. It's when we lean on our biases. And I, I follow a lot the, of the work from the Neuroleadership Institute. They put some great work out um, that is based in very soundly in, in neuroscience of how we learn. And uh, they say that if you have a brain, you're biased, meaning that we all have biases. And our brain is constantly creating these sort of assumptions so that we don't have to put thought or bandwidth into everything. And the sort of example I used to crystallize this with people is I can ask anybody about their commute today and you might remember something about your commute today, but you probably don't remember your commute yesterday. And it's because your brain's constantly looking for opportunities that it doesn't have to think about things. And so these are our biases. You're biased about your commute. You're, you know it's what's the best way. You've done it a hundred times. Uh, so our brain creates these biases. And so on our teams, even we know who the go-to person is. We know who's going to respond to X in a certain way, and the other person will respond another way. And so, lazy leaders tend to lean on our biases. They make a lot of assumptions, and you kind of catch them in their mind saying, "Well, this always works, so it'll continue to work." And what they essentially have stopped doing is they stop that that empathy muscle from being very active. They don't take perspective. They don't uh, take perspectives as often as, as, as they should, because they start to really kind of get on top of like, I know how this works, you know, I can run it now. And that serves them in so many ways, but they're inadvertently creating blind spots around them. And so that, that lazy leadership is not paying attention to those blind spots and they end up missing opportunities. Hmm. So in that section about lazy leadership, uh, you talk about what you call the two main jobs of the leader. Uh, can you get into that for us a little bit? Yeah, this could be characterized as a gross oversimplification, but I really do take you know throughout the book and my work the Zen approach of you know simple is best in a lot of cases, and 
we talk about the two main jobs is in most cases, a leader has to train the people that, that, that depend on them. And that can be a knowledge transfer that can be providing tools for their success. That can be removing barriers for their success. So train is kind of like a catch all word at that point, but it's basically Mm -hmm. setting them up to succeed. And then once the individuals are set up to succeed, motivation is key. It's, it's that ongoing part of their relationship that will really drive people to give that discretionary effort to make the difference between getting the job done and greatness. Yeah, it is a simple idea, but Chris, I don't think it's an oversimplification. I, I think that it's really relevant to anybody who is in leadership is to be thinking about right? How well have I prepared this person for success, right? How well have I trained them, right? I I try to get my division managers and Cutco and Vector to think about each and every one of their district managers and think, right, what's the one thing this person needs to learn to go from the level they're on now to the next level, right? And pretty much, pretty much every DM has something they could learn and, you know, take to the next level. Yeah, I'll, I'll channel Earl Kelly with something that he had said to me years ago, obviously, that uh, he said that every three months he would focus on some new part of the business mm-hmm. that he wasn't focused on previously, and he was just going to improve that, which seems like not enough when you're a new branch or a new district manager and you've got, it feels like a hundred things that you have to pay attention to. But the way Earl put it is, look, at the end of the year, that's four parts of the business that you've probably gotten great at. And then the following year, that's four more parts of the business that you've probably gotten great at. And it was, it was simple, but it was, it was exciting at the same time. And I think of the tendency that organizations have that I've seen to overtrain people. And they, they, it's sort of, you know, I hear drinking from the fire hose, uh, baptism by fire and expressions like this to express that, you know, we, we want to overload people because that's how they'll learn. And, I really push back on that quite a bit because I can promise there's so much to learn about Cutco, for instance, but I don't think a single customer says, I'll take it when I said, you know, 55 to 57 Rockwell C for the hardness, which I still remember. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's because you can overtrain, you can, you can overload information. And I, I look back, I was like, well, the only part that was really important was cut the rope, cut the penny, cut the leather, have fun. And you know that was that was the important part is these people had to have confidence to go out and be successful. It didn't matter if they knew everything about the product, you know they could go find it out. But so that was really key for me to take with me from Vector and that whole experience was um, don't necessarily overtrain. You don't have to give people everything. You have to give them support, and you have to remove their barriers. So training can mean a lot of things, but that motivation piece is key as well. Yeah, you'll be glad to know, Chris, that all the vector reps listening probably have no idea what you said about the Rockwell hardness because we have eliminated that. We have realized that's not something that's important to be teaching people, uh, at least in initial training for sure. Um, the engineers it, will it, love it. It doesn't sell more Cutco. That that's a fact. And you know, you said something like there might be a hundred things to learn, but just focusing on a few small things makes a big difference. And regardless of how many things there are to learn and whatever it is you're doing there is one thing that is the most important thing that you could learn and develop in the short term that's going to take you from where you are to the next level that you want to be at. There is one thing that you can learn that's the most important. And by focusing on that most important thing first, then moving on to the next, 
you can elevate your game. And as a leader, by helping people to understand what is that most important thing and then giving them that so that they make that progress, that's one of the key two jobs. And then you said the other key job is motivating, right? Once they have the skills, right? What are we doing to make sure that they're continuing to be motivated and continuing to do what they have to do, taking action? You describe this very beautifully in the book where you talk about motivation. And you have a great example of what you call the fear-based culture versus the desire-based culture. So let's talk about that concept here. Yeah, I'd love to. It's uh, really central to, to my work. And I had unleashed this and when I was in, in healthcare, working a lot with uh, people who worked at the bedside for our patients. And I, I saw how tough the culture was. And I saw sort of the how how people were driving it. And I also saw a very high rate of burnout. And the the setup for this ultimately is, you know, if I ask groups of people, you know, tell me something that motivates all people, I hear words like money, and I hear words like success, and those are, are I believe, wrong. They're not entirely wrong. I, I think money can motivate people, but you mentioned the fear and desire. Those are, I would say, the only two things that motivate people are, are fear and desire, and everything else fits into one of those. So use the money example. If somebody's motivated by money, well, let's just say that they're living paycheck to paycheck, they have medical bills coming up, and they're worried about debt. Think of that mindset versus somebody who has lots of money in the bank, they love earning money, and they want more investment, they want more toys, or they want to buy a new house. Those two people have very different mindsets and deserve to be managed and led in very different ways or motivated in very different ways because one person has that, uh, that arc of fear over them and the other person is really, they have that, that desire in, in their heart without that fear. And so anything else that you think about really, and there's an elegance to that model of fear versus desire, everything ends up fitting into that uh, pretty cleanly if, uh, if, if you think about it, which is why inadvertently, I think Vector has been so successful is because we're uh, creating visions with people for a push week. We don't talk about uh, what could all go wrong in the push week. You know, we make the vision of, you know, what it's going to feel like to get that the top trophy for, for that. And so I think Vector inadvertently was very good at doing that, that uh, desire-based culture and getting people to talk about their whys and uh, fulfilling purpose. And, but I've seen a lot of cultures where they have sort of that or else. They say things like, you know, just be lucky you have a job. And they're really sort of creating this, um, this, this fear-based culture where, where people burn out and they, they really don't uh, give that discretionary effort. Yeah, you used one example in the book about fear-based versus desire-based culture where it was something really simple. You said in a fear-based culture, a leader might say, hey, this is mandatory. Yep. Whereas in a desire-based culture, they're going to explain why this is valuable to the person. And I think about this when I think about vector managers. Like whenever a rep used to ask me, you know, hey, is the team meeting mandatory? Right. I would always answer the rep like, hey, you know what? The only thing that's mandatory in this business, as far as I'm concerned, is that you have a good experience and that you succeed. And so let me tell you why the team meeting is a big part of that, you being successful and having a good experience. And then I would promote the team meeting and why it will be so valuable so that they want to be there. Right. I don't want someone to feel like afraid of some consequence if they don't hit a goal. I want people to feel the joy of what will come to them when they do hit the goal. 
And I think that the fear-based culture, uh, the, the desire-based culture is energizing to people, whereas the fear-based culture is debilitating to people. I believe that's true. And I think a big example is we look how the media keeps our attention, which is a form of motivation, is there's a lot of fear-based going on. And even if you hear politicians, regardless of what side of the spectrum you're on, politicians spend a lot less time talking about their own vision as much as they do say their opponent, their opponent, their opponent. And they're creating this, this picture of dystopia if their opponent wins, wins an election. And they talk about all of the things that are wrong or that will go wrong, you know, if, if their opponent were in power. Well, that's, that's playing on that fear-based motivation, which gets you a very good short-term result, but it's not sustainable. And I think of that uh, th- this is also seen in that transactional versus transformational leadership. Transformational leadership is very, it's widely used right now, and it's very much tapping into that very similar desire-based culture. Yeah, I I like what you said about how it's short-term versus long-term. And for anyone that feels like you are somebody who's motivated by fear, you know, you, quote, hate to lose, I've heard people say that, I think that that's a short-term way of viewing the world and that it doesn't lead you to really long-term results. I heard a podcast with Kerry Walsh Jennings, uh, you know, one of our all-time great U.S. Olympians, volleyball player. And she said, you know, I love to win and I'm motivated by the feeling and love of winning more than by the feeling of hating to lose. And, and I do feel like that's the mindset that leads to longer term success, more motivation, more what I would call permanent motivation, even though motivation really can never be truly permanent, but longer term, more sustainable motivation, I guess you could say comes from that feeling of wanting to win, desire-based, right? Re- what are the rewards I'm going to get when I achieve this versus worrying so much about the consequences? And that's a, a mindset shift that I think not everybody has made, but that when you can make it, can help lead to a greater level of success and can help you as a leader to inspire your people to a greater level of success. I agree. To what extent motivation is not permanent, which I totally agree with, your why can be. And your why is what you can reach into for that sense of purpose to get that desire-based motivation when you need it, kind of like a value. It's that compass that gets you back on track after, uh, after some time. Outstanding. Chris, this has been really great. Is there any other insights you feel like you want to share with the uh, Vector Cutco audience of reps, managers, alumni? I would honestly just say that that level of authenticity that we all have, and I think I've always seen really strong in Vector and Vector alumni, to me is just central to how we build relationships. And I got so much of that from my time with the company is learning how people from being very, very different leaders could have such a strong influence on it. And I think there are leaders who have influenced people that they have no idea they influence them. Like I could list off names of people who influence me who have no idea who I am before today. And, and they, uh, they have no idea the impact they had on my life. Just from seeing them at one annual conference with the managers, we used to call it the SLC event. I didn't know if it was still called that. But seeing so much of that authentic leader that I see in that company has really left an imprint on me 20 years later. Oh, that's awesome to hear. And it's awesome for 
you know, anybody working in Vector and Cutco to here to think about the impact that they could have on others through their own authentic leadership and through growing their own skills as a leader. Chris, the theme of this podcast is, uh, you know, changing lives. And I'm just interested in, you know, as you look into your own future down the road, how would you aspire to change people's lives through your work or through your influence? Yeah, I've been told throughout my life that I'm a bit of not only am I very mindful, but the mindset that I have is really that the ability to help others grow and help others heal. And I learned at Vector actually that the one factor in my life that I believe is essential to all my motivation is if I can have a positive influence on the human beings around me, the concept of leaving them better than you found them, I am a very happy individual. So regardless of my pay, my bonuses, my anything, is that's really what what drives me. And so being able to bring that healing to my work, it's an opportunity to break some of the stigma that's around right now as we're really learning more about the neuroscience of, of mental health and how we're on overload of stimulation and how I believe that every human being carries, you know, some trauma, some some damage. And part of whether it's leadership or just relationships is if people can really get that knack of how to be authentic, how to be vulnerable, and how to really work through emotions in a brand new way that they maybe haven't in their past or that hasn't served them very well. And that's really why the company name that I chose, Bushido, it's the uh, it's the Samurai Warriors Code. And it's a series of seven values, essentially, that, that drives people. But it's you know, the samurai class, they were not the landowners, they were not the ruling class, but they were the people that were probably the most revered and the most feared. So my work is really helping people connect with their values so that they can create better relationships in their life and they can work through any of the blocks that they have that are preventing those relationships from being really powerful. Awesome. Well, it's great to see the work that you're doing. I've definitely enjoyed being able to learn from the insights that you've shared both in the book and through this conversation today. I think there's been a lot of valuable information that uh, our audience is going to be able to take home. uh, And I really, really appreciate uh, your time and energy you've brought to this. Dan, I can't thank you enough. This has been a big opportunity for me. So thank you. Awesome. Chris Malpours, everyone. Very insightful. Enjoyed hearing how Chris had a variety of managers in the early part of his career in Vector and how they were all different, he said. And interesting to think about how many of us have a variety of different leaders in our lives. And I can remember uh, one of my guests, Hero Rodriguez, talking about what he called the hybrid leadership matrix, where you learn this value from this person and this skill from this other person and different things from different people and that you put that together into the package of who you are as a leader that we don't try to be someone else right we try to figure out what is most important to us and how can we develop in those areas as a leader in our business asking ourselves the question what is important to me blank is important to me chris said what is it that's important to me and why and trying to figure out what truly our most important core values are. I thought that was really good. Telling others the things that are important to us and creating that vulnerability and openness in terms of being able to receive feedback from people in our organization. This is one of the things that, as I mentioned in the interview, has been a real awakening for me 
throughout my career. And I do, I do feel like that now I have the kind of relationship with some of my key people where they are willing to tell me whatever they want to tell me. And it enables me to grow more quickly as a leader. And it's very valuable. The two main jobs of the leader, training their people and motivating their people, simple, but key to think about, right? Are you giving your people the tools? Think of one individual who works for you now and you know, what does that person need and how are you going to give them those skills, those tools in the near future so they can take the next step uh, in their career with you? And then, of course, motivating people and the idea that uh, everything that pertains to motivation can be fit into either a fear-based category or a desire-based category. And that desire-based motivation is what energizes people and creates longer-term sustained success. In the book, Chris talks about some of the myths of leadership. And at the end of that chapter, he says, but there's one thing that we all know that is not a myth, and it is the fact that leadership matters. Leadership, when it is not done right, can lead people in the wrong direction, can perpetuate negative stereotypes of leaders, and can spread from one person to the next and create a toxic culture in any organization. Leadership, when it's done right, can be uplifting, inspiring, life-changing for people. And that's what we are all about here in Cutco and Vector is changing people's lives for the better through the leadership that we provide to them, the skills, the experiences, the inspiration, and whatever role you're in, whether in Vector or out of Vector, it should be our desire, our goal to impact people in the most positive fashion that we can. And I hope that each of you take that challenge to heart and you let that inspire you for today. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.